This morning's text lands us right square in the middle of one of the most common Bible passages. And uh, I wrestled with this this week. I think every preacher, pastor, as they tackle certain texts, especially the more common ones, begins to feel a little guilty like that this text says everything. What could I possibly add to it? How could I possibly make it more relevant? And, and the Lord made it pretty clear to me early in the week, like, you don't really need to add anything to what I said. Like, it's, it's all good, Larry. You're, you're set. You know, why don't you just teach what the Bible says and, and be done with it? And, and my goal is never to really add to the word of the Lord. I don't want to ever do that. That's what I'm saying. But sometimes in an effort to properly study the word of God, you come to some great deep revelations or uh, enhanced understandings. And, and, and this text does, doesn't need a lot of that. It's so basic and core to who we are as Christians and what we believe. But before we go to this very popular text in John chapter 3, um, it's important, I think, for us to be grounded in why it is so important. And to do that is to understand where we're at as a culture and understand where we're at as a church today in 2016. Just this week, uh, a recent poll that was sponsored by Legionnaire Ministry, um, which if any of you are familiar with the name R.C. Sproul, it's his ministry, Legionnaire Ministries, based out of Orlando, Florida. They sponsored a poll conducted by Lifeway Research, and it was published this week, and it it shows sort of a, a sad, conflicting uh, story within our culture today. I just want to share with you some of these numbers in an effort to drive home why this verse that we're going to study this morning is more important than ever. We think that everybody understands this. We think that everybody understands the truth of Jesus Christ, even within the evangelical church. And it's just not the case. According to this study this week, 60% of Americans believe in heaven as a real place where eventually everybody will be reunited with their loved ones. Catch that. So six out of ten people that you run into in your everyday life believe that everybody is going to heaven at some point in time and is going to be reunited with their loved ones there. Yet... 54% of Americans say that trusting Christ is the only way to salvation. What? So 60% of Americans say that everybody's getting to heaven eventually to be reunited with loved ones. But when asked if Jesus is the only way to heaven, 54% said yes. All right? So apparently the majority of Americans believe that everybody at some point in time is going to trust in Christ and go to heaven. And 52% of Americans believe that by their own personal good works, they can contribute to them earning heaven. What? You just said that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and yet almost the same number of people said, but I contribute to it through my own good works. Now, it gets even more weird. Three-quarters of Americans disagree with the notion 
that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. So in Americans' minds, they've determined, the majority of Americans have determined that there are some sins that rate uh, hell-worthy and some that don't, which, by the way, is anti-biblical. And 84%, this is really sad, 84% of evangelicals believe in hell. Well, that was a little more encouraging to me. I mean, like at least people who claim to be an evangelical Christian believe that there is a real place called hell. But only 30% of the rest of America believes in hell. Overall, last statistic, overall, only 40% of Americans believe that you go to hell if you don't have Christ. Which makes the text that we read this morning all the more important. If you have your word of the Lord, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Maybe one of the most important texts in the entire gospel of Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, stop a second. When you hear Jesus say truly, truly, and it's followed by something, what he's stating is an unequivocal truth that you must pay attention to. The words truly, truly translated are amen, amen. Which is why when you pray and you finish your prayer with the phrase amen, what you're really saying is in agreement with your truth, Lord, in accordance with your will, Lord. Everything that's true is in you, Lord. So when you pray something, you're wrapping up your prayer and you're saying in your agreement, your will, in your truth, Lord. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, that which is born, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God, is so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Uh, you know, I haven't seen him as much anymore, but I can remember as a young boy growing up watching football games on TV, and there was always the dude that got the seat behind the end zone goalpost, right? That had the big sign up, and whenever the camera was on the kick, the sign always said, John 3.16. And it was like, this guy somehow got around to every single NFL game on every Sunday, and it was behind every single goalpost. And that was the way I learned John 3.16. I remember asking my mom, what's that sign mean? And my mom told me, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ in one verse. So it makes sense that if the dude wanted to get the gospel out there, why not hold up that one verse in the end zone? Nowadays, for whatever reason, uh, we, we all need safe places or safe spaces or we can't get our feelings hurt or terroristic threats or whatever. We're not allowed to hold up signs anymore in football games. Um, but back in the day, you used to be able to be really evangelistic at a football game if you could manage to get a sign in that said John 3.16. It starts with this guy, Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Uh, it says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was more than just a Pharisee. Um, he was an elder. He was a ruler of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, uh, the way the Jews had structured their leadership was that they, uh, they took 70 of the uh, best Pharisees and they sat on a council together. And they made up those 70 plus one which, you know, in our Senate, the plus one is the vice president of the United States. This plus one happened to be the chief priest. Uh, so they had a council of 71. They were responsible for ruling in all matters of religion and societal causes in the nation of Israel. Now, by the time Jesus came around, they had much less influence uh, across the broad reach of Judaism, but especially with regards to Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin still ruled. And one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin council would have been Nicodemus. So somehow Nicodemus gets in, in his mind. He's heard these things. Maybe he's seen some of the things that Jesus had been doing and decides that rather than blowing his cover, but he's still curious, in the middle of the night, which my mom always told me nothing good ever happens at night, but uh, especially as a teenage boy, you know, when you'd ask for your curfew to be extended, can I come home at midnight instead of 11? No, because nothing good happens after 11. That was her thought. Mindy's dad actually said the same thing to him, although he was a little more lenient. He said nothing good ever happens after 12. Um, so it's, it's true. But in the case of Nicodemus, he decides that under the cloak of darkness, he's going to seek out this Jesus and begin to quiz him because there's something different about him. And Jesus begins to explain this concept of second birth, which is what I want to drive home today. What I'm going to give you are three things today. What we see here in this text is the method of second birth, the method of being born again, 
we see um, the mode of second birth. And lastly, we see the message of that second birth. The method, the mode, and the message. Like a good Southern Baptist preacher, for the first time in a long time, I give you alliteration this morning. The method, the mode, and the message of the second birth. Now, with regard to the method of the second birth, the first thing we see here is this truth. The method of the second birth is a spiritual act of God. To be born again is something that only comes as a result of a spiritual act on God's part. And what I want to really focus in on is this verse 13. Let's look at this again for a second. It won't be on the screen, but but if you have your Bibles or maybe just listen to what I say here, verse 13. Nicodemus is confused. He's questioning Jesus on this idea of second birth. And finally, Jesus says to him, no one has ascended into heaven. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And even before that, he said to him, I've told you heavenly things, but you're incapable of understanding heavenly things. If I told you earthly things, you might get it. I'm telling you heavenly things, you're not getting heavenly things. And those heavenly things are born on me. Who else could descend from heaven and ascend to heaven but he who is the Son of Man? You're talking to him. You're talking to the revealer of truth. The reason you're not getting it is because this is a spiritual thing that you're not getting. Have you ever run into somebody like that? Like You just keep explaining Bible stuff, and it's like just throwing stuff up against a brick wall. It's just not getting, or they keep coming back with nonsensical questions. You know, like, you, you begin to explain the simple gospel to them, and they come back with, like, you know, well, you know, why do fetuses in the womb, human fetuses, why do they start with a tail? You're like, what? That's a legitimate question. I've gotten one time. Why do human fetuses in the womb, when they're developing, why do they start with a tail? And I'm like, I'm... I'm telling you about how you can be saved, and you're worried about uh, how babies are formed in the womb. But it's just like you know that like there's nothing going on there because these things are spiritually directed from the Lord. So from that standpoint, if you think about presenting the gospel to people and sharing truth, that's our job, yes. But there are times where hearts are hard, and God's just not in the business of revealing a truth to somebody at that particular point in time. And that's okay. But this was all God's spiritual doing, this salvation thing. God, who is spirit, sent his son in the flesh to cure the disease of sin. It started with him. It was done under his authority. It was done by his initiative. It has nothing to do with us. Salvation, I want to make that clear. Like We offer invitations. We ask people to make a decision for Christ. We ask people to, to turn their hearts to the Lord. And we'll talk more about that in this sermon. But up front, we have to understand that no man comes to the Father unless the Lord draws him. There must be a spiritual act on God's part to bring men into salvation. Think about it this way. Your physical birth, your physical birth that you had 
It was something that you were a part of, but it's not something that you initiated or produced, is it? Thank you, parents, for that. But when you were born, you were a part of that process, but you didn't initiate it, and you didn't contribute to it one bit. So why would your second birth be different? It is something that's initiated by the Father that you are a part of and blessed to be a part of. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, the scripture does not say ye must be improved. The scripture says ye must be born again. That's it. So all those Americans in that survey, the of the evangelical Christians, whatever the numbers were, but it was some ridiculous number that said, yeah, well, Jesus needs to be, you know, Jesus is the only way by which you can be saved, but yet there's this huge number that says, yes, but you can also contribute to your own salvation. Not true. It's all a spiritual act of God by his initiative. You're just a, a part of that process. So when I shared the gospel with somebody this week, I made it clear, like, this isn't, this isn't something you are making happen. This is something that God is graciously doing for you at this moment because there's no way a person can be saved of their own accord. This is, this is 1 Corinthians 13.7 in action. You know this is a love passage, right? But the text says this, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The love of Calvary is so divine that it gives everything. You contribute nothing to the love of Calvary's cross. When God gave his son, he did it out of that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. He poured himself out literally on the cross. He gave it, he gave us everything on the cross. 1 John 3:16. By this we know love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The love of Calvary is so divine it gives everything. The love of Calvary is so divine that it washes over the undeserved. You, when you are saved, when a person is generally, genuinely saved, they are overcome by grace. They sense it. They know it, they recognize it, and they never get over it. The divine love of Calvary washes over you like a massive flood. I can remember going to the beach in southwest Florida hours after a hurricane had come through. And it's pretty rare in Florida, you know, like you go to the east coast if you want the wave. You go to the west coast if you want the, the old people calm. So the, the Gulf of Mexico usually just kind of gently laps up on the shore. There's not a lot of excitement going on there. You go there to listen to seagulls and take in the sunshine. You don't go there for a lot of action. But when a hurricane comes through the Gulf of Mexico, that's your chance. So you go out there, and for the first time in a long time, you could run out into the, I can remember being in Siesta Key Beach and running out there as a young man when I had less fear in my life, and the, the waves were like over my six-foot-two head, and they would just boosh, crash down, and you get lost in them. And that's what the divine love of Calvary is like. It washes over the undeserving. 
Paul said in Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me just devote on that. Think on that passage for a second. You want to know how little you have to offer God? He was saving you while you were yet dead in sin. You were so corrupt in sin, you couldn't possibly even drum up a single thought of something that would be worthy to offer to the Lord for your salvation. And yet, God sent His Son to the cross in order to redeem you. That's a pretty big weight. When you get hit, knocked down by something like that, you don't get over it. That's why I, I always get a little skeptical when folks come with this flippant Christian attitude or when they talk about grace as if it's something that just sort of, yeah, that happened to me. Look, when I got saved, I did not get over it. It just began to snowball in my life to where it became everything to me. And getting that message into other people's lives and hearts became everything to me. And taking the Word of God and helping people comprehend it and live by it, it became everything for me because the wave that struck me was overwhelming. The love of Calvary is so divine that it screams out forgiveness, even for the ignorant, even for the people who have no idea that they're even lost. It screams out forgiveness. In Luke 23, as Jesus is being crucified, Luke's account says this, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Devote on that for a second. As the men were crucifying him, unrepentant, willfully doing what they were doing. The Lord was crying out on their behalf, Father, forgive them. When you and I were unregenerate and we were enemies of God, which the scripture says that we are all born in that condition. When we were enemies of God, God or Jesus Christ was petitioning on our behalf, Father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. That's what the cross is all about. Ignorant people who don't even yet comprehend their need for salvation, and yet the, the love of Christ is at work on their behalf. Redemption and grace drawing them in, speaking truth into their life. And the love of Calvary is so divine that it waits patiently to lavish itself upon those who have abused There are people who abuse the name of Jesus Christ and they abuse the mercy of God. And yet God stands there ready to forgive and redeem and give purpose. That's the whole story of the prodigal son, isn't it? There was an inheritance waiting. And the one son came and said, I don't want to wait anymore, which was an affront. In those days, an absolute affront to your father. It's, it, it, was, it was the equivalent 
of the eldest son saying, I wish you were dead so I could get my hands on the money now. And the father said, here, take it. And what does he do? He goes and he abuses him. He trashes his life. He trashes the gifts. He throws his life away to the point where he's eating the slop that was meant for the swine. But the most beautiful part of the picture, the image, is that when the son finally realized what he had done, he was so prepared to humble himself. He said, if I, if I could just get a job as the lowliest servant in my father's house, at least I would have some real food for my belly. And he came back and he prepared himself to throw himself at the feet of his father and beg for a meal. He was that undeserving. But where was the father's heart at that point? His father's heart was at the end of the lane. His father's heart was at the end of the road patiently and expectantly wanting and waiting for his son to come back. The inheritance was gone, yes. But what did he do for his son? He threw the biggest party ever. And he put a robe on him and he made him, gave him the position that he no longer deserved. That's the love of Calvary's cross. Patiently waiting to lavish itself upon those who don't deserve it. This is a spiritual act of God. I, I'm just I'm prefacing all these verses because I want you to get this idea. There's no way forgiveness could happen. There's no way salvation could happen unless it starts with God. Which brings us to point two. The method of second birth, birth means that it's a, it's a spiritual revelation, spiritual revelation. Look, salvation is something that some people are going to get and some people aren't. And that breaks my heart. But there are just going to be people who are going to look at you like you are crazy when you say to them you need to be born again. I'm sad that born again is a phrase that has been dropped from our Christian vernacular. I love to use it because it causes people to make this face. Go ahead, Alan. So you're saying I need to be born again? Right? And they look at you like you're absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But for the person who is, is hearing from the Lord, for the person whom the Lord is drawing, they think differently. In verses uh, 6 to 12, Jesus describes to Nicodemus that he's not getting it for any reason. He's saying to him, this is a spiritual truth. This is a spiritual revelation. This is, with Nicodemus' life, this is where a spiritual revelation and a hard heart are colliding. And Jesus says, this is, this is like the wind. It's a really interesting analogy. It's like the wind. It's the coming and goings of this truth are unknown. And he says to Nicodemus, you haven't believed earthly things. How can you possibly believe heavenly things? Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritual things, truths, are are discerned spiritually. So you may have that buddy or that girlfriend or that grandchild or, or uh, whatever, co-worker, and you, you just keep you know, trying. You keep dropping spiritual truths. You keep waiting for them to get a grasp on it, and you feel like a total failure, and you shouldn't. Because sometimes spiritual truths just are not discerned because the person is not spiritually considerate. And that, that is a hard truth. To swallow. Nicodemus' struggle was an intellectual one. He was trying to intellectualize the truths of God. It was also a humility one. His problem was a, a humility one. But most importantly, Nicodemus' struggle was a spiritual one. But as we'll see, there's hope for everybody. Because It was Nicodemus that would stand up for Jesus in trying to dissuade the Sanhedrin from judging him without a trial. He also, at the end of the Gospels, is the one who risks everything in order to help Joseph of Arimathea obtain the body of Jesus so that it could be prepared for burial. It was no longer a nighttime escapade under the cloak of darkness for Nicodemus, but by the time he gets to the end and he sees the divine love on full display, he's prepared to risk everything in order to go in the middle. This is a ruler of the Sanhedrin. To go in the middle of the day and obtain the body of the one whom the Sanhedrin had just judged as guilty and blasphemous. So that's the method of second birth. And if you remember anything out of there, I just want you to remember that this is a spiritual act that starts with God. But the mode of second birth starts with the fact that it is, the, the way a person is saved is by the Son of Man being lifted up. It's the Son of Man being lifted up. Jesus throws out this kind of like non sequitur. It seems sort of like weird to us. He says, you know, just like Moses had to lift up a a staff with a bronze snake on it. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is the beauty of the Old Testament. See, we, uh, we, we talk about this whenever we study the Old Testament. The Old Testament exists to point us towards Christ and our need for salvation in Jesus Christ. So what's this Moses and a bronze serpent and a staff story all about? Well, let's visit it again in Numbers chapter 21. Children of Israel are making their exit from Egypt. And as is typical, they are disgruntled and grumbling and complaining and problems begin to arise. And it says in verse 4, From Mount Hor they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. I don't know what fiery serpents are, but that doesn't sound good. Like, curious, what is that? I and mean, these are the things that cause me to ponder as I read the Bible. What, is there an equivalent today of a fiery serpent? Is it a serpent that was actually on fire? Is it a serpent that was like a fire ant that when it bit you, your leg would just explode in fiery pain? I don't know, but it sounds miserable. And God sent a bunch of them at the feet of the Israelites who were grumbling, complaining, and standing against God and even complaining about his grace that he gave them in the form of manna. And uh, so God's like, great, you think you got a bad? Here, have some fiery snakes. I'll give you something to grumble about. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Now that tells us something. Bitten by a fiery snake as a judgment of God didn't just mean like misery or a swollen leg. Or get bit by a snake, you die. But Moses makes this fiery snake on a staff, and if they lift it up, they'll live if they look upon it. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is just clearly a text that points us towards the cross of Jesus Christ. Snakes biting us. The deception of the garden's serpent. He came to Adam and Eve. He came to humanity. He deceived them. And in the process of buying into that deception, every human being today is snake bitten, are we not? The snake that has bitten us has uh, has guaranteed death for each one of us. Sin entered the world through the serpent, and the sin, the wages of sin is death. We are each living in a world where God has judged us according to our sin, and the guarantee of that judgment is death. But then he sends his son out of his grace and his grace alone because there is nothing about the Israelites' attitude that warranted them to be saved. And there's nothing about humanity today and our sinfulness that warrants us to be saved. And yet God sent his son and he allowed him to be raised up on the cross. And that whoever would look upon him, whoever would believe in him and his name for salvation would overcome the curse of being snake-bitten and would be saved out of the penalty of that sin, which is death, and would be guaranteed life. Consider this verse in Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. All of a sudden, the curse of sin, which we chose in the garden, Jesus Christ became that curse on the cross. The judgment of God, the curse of, of the fiery snakes was put upon a staff 
and raised up, and that whoever would look upon that would overcome the bite of the snake. And so it is that everybody who is cursed by sin, that curse was placed upon the perfect Son of God, who God loved more than you and me, placed that upon him, and, and he was raised up on the cross that whoever looks upon him. Church, this, this information should not grow old to us. This should dumbfound us every single time we hear it. This is, this is old news, and it's always the best news. It's the gospel of Christ that we're forgiven. The second point of the mode of the mode of, of second birth, the second point here is this. Yes, it's the Son of Man being lifted up, but yes, it's also man believing in him. You have to believe in Christ. Believing in him for eternal life rather than receiving the condemnation that we deserve. What is condemnation? Remember verse 18 here. Jesus says this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What does it mean to be condemned? Condemnation is that awful understanding that you are guilty and it hangs over your head as you await punishment. Condemned is that moment where the judge renders a verdict and the court officials put the handcuffs on you and you know that your next stop is an orange jumpsuit for the rest of your life. At that moment, you are condemned. The judgment has been spoken. The penalty has been placed upon you and there is no getting away from it. But yet, we're told in God's word that's now all gone in Christ. In Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, Paul says this, There is now therefore no condemnation. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's that Spirit thing again. We are now no longer under condemnation if you are in Christ. Believing in Him for eternal life rather than choosing to perish. Because the punishment that awaits us all is eternal death. That's what perishing means in the Scripture. So 1 Corinthians 1.18 Paul said, For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. Um, hear me when I say this. It's a very important biblical truth in the New Testament. We think 
that post-cross, people go to hell because they have done something wrong or because they're a murderer or because they're blasphemous or because they, uh, whatever. We think of the reason that people go to hell is because of particular sins in their life. Jesus, I don't know if you caught this, Jesus said there's there's only one reason that people go to hell. Um, Let me read for you again, starting in verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemnation occurs because of one reason and one reason only. A person rejects the name of Jesus Christ. It's not what a person does. Individual sins that mark them as condemned. What marks a person as condemned is whether they are on the side of Christ or not. Whether they believe in the saving power of his name or not. Whether they have accepted his free gift of salvation or not. That is what determines a person's position in the afterlife. That's what determines whether a person is is saved from eternal hell and whether a person is to receive eternal heaven, eternal life when this life is over. Does that make sense? Jesus said, you are condemned because you have not believed in the name of the Son of God. So rather than us as Christians trying to fix society by targeting specific sins and getting to some point of behavior modification, the way we will change society is by advancing the gospel message, which is, here's our Jesus. He died for the sins of the whole world. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have you trusted in that? When God gets a hold of a person's heart based upon that, then we're going to see transformation occur in our society. Then we're going to see people running to fill our churches and to fill our homes and to worship in Bible study and worship in Sunday service. The idea is not more slick marketing It's not the moral majority like Jerry Falwell would say. I mean, I believe wholeheartedly in Christians having a voice in society today. I believe that with all my heart, and it starts at the election box, by the way. But with that said, the greatest difference we're going to make is by helping people see that they need to believe in the name of the living God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to save us. That's how an awakening is going to start in our country. And that's when, on November 6th, when we get together and pray on that Sunday night, that's what our focus is going to be. We're going to start with praying for the salvation of those people that need to be saved, that God would work and draw people to himself in this country, that an awakening would occur, that our elected leaders would begin to recognize the authority of Christ in their lives. Eternal life is this. John 17, 3. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, 
as he was praying to his Father, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know what saddens me when I read that verse? Jesus said eternal life is knowing him and knowing the Father. How many people who claim to be Christians operate in their life, this life, as if they're content just to keep Jesus at arm's distance? They want the salvation, but they don't want Christ. They want the forgiveness, but they don't want the relationship. And the two go hand in hand. Because ultimately, eternal life When we exit this world and you enter into your eternal paradise, you know what it's going to be? You and Christ together forever, worshiping, falling on your face. You're never going to be out of his presence. So I I hope that coming to church isn't a burden for you because that's what eternity is. The word to know here when it comes to God and Christ, when Jesus prayed and said to know the Son, to know the Father, is the Greek word gnoskosin. It's a verb, and it's in the present active tense, which means it's stressing a deep, intimate knowledge. A deep, intimate knowledge. And adults hear me when I say this. Such a deep, intimate knowledge as you would have with a spouse. In every regard. That's what that word gnoskosin means, to know him there. So why would a Christian possibly claim the title of Christian and then operate with Christ here, seeking better things for their life unless they need Jesus? When in reality, Jesus said eternal life is that intimate of a relationship, as intimate as a husband and wife could possibly be. Often when we think of eternal life, we think of a place, which is heaven, heaven, and, and that's true. Then there's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to begin to think greater than that. I want you to think of eternal life as a person. Think of eternal life as a person knowing God more intimately than you could possibly comprehend right now. That's what Jesus died for. So lastly this morning, I give to you the message of the second birth. We've talked about the method, we've talked about the mode, but now let's talk about what the message is. Jesus ended this conversation with Nicodemus centered around this idea of light. Did you catch that? Just share it quickly again. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The message of the second birth is this. First, the Son of God is the overcoming light. We think that we have more methodologies and and more effort and we're going to be able to save more people in our own strength. No. 
It's the light of Christ that has to penetrate the world and penetrate the hearts of people in order for salvation to occur. When Christ entered the world, all those things that were once that once held sway of power over humanity, all those things like sin and satanic oppression and demonic influence, all those things of darkness had to yield. The cross said that everything that is evil must yield to me. There's no power anymore when it comes to the cross. The cross trumps everything because the Son of God who was light hung on the cross gave of himself for everybody who was mired in darkness. There is now no darkness that has authority over your life if you are in Christ. When Christ entered the world, the power of those things held over us no longer stands. Like cockroaches, when you click the light off in a room, they scurry. Uh, When I was living in Florida, they don't call them cockroaches. They're more sophisticated down there. They call them palmetto bugs. They're just cockroaches with wings. Everybody has them. They don't. They act like they don't, but they all have them in their homes. And uh, they tend to find dark places. And so you walk into the kitchen in the morning to get your coffee, and you'll click on the light, and everything's cool. And then you open the cupboard to get your coffee mug out, and <laughs> out they come. Because you exposed, in my opinion, that which is most evil to light. And it must flee. And so it is with sin and darkness in this world. The key here, folks, is not behavior. Please hear me what I'm saying here. The gospel is not about behavior modification in our society. The gospel is about exposing the dark and ignorant world to the light of Christ. Lastly, the message of second birth is this. And this is the message that we all must carry as Christians. Man must turn to the light. You must turn to the light in order to be saved. The light is what it is. The light is what it is. It's unchanging, it's constant, it's perfect. And a man either recognizes it and values it, or as Jesus said, he turns to it and he begins to avoid it so that he could keep his wicked deeds hidden. A person chooses in their life whether they will have light and forgiveness or the fleeting pleasure of wickedness and sin in their life. That's why Jesus said, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world see both grace and truth were given in Jesus Christ. And you can't separate the two. And because grace and truth, truth being the light, grace being the mercy of the cross, because they were both given at the same time and they can't be separated, a person must choose both. Both. Consider 1 John 1. Verses 5 to 7, 
the apostle said this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The message that the gospel bears is to turn to the light of Christ and come clean about your sins and look upon him and be saved. It doesn't ask you to fix your sins. It doesn't ask you to better your life. It simply says acknowledge the reality of who you are. Turn to him. Believe in him and be saved. Why? Why? Because he loves you. That's all. Why would God do this? Why would he possibly ask this of us? Why would he pay so much of a price, so high of a price? Because he loves you. He loves you where you're at. He loves you in the sin that you're mired in, the infidelity, the deception and lying, the theft. He loves you in your blasphemous state, your hatred towards him, and he loves you. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God, it all starts with this phrase, for God so loved. He loved you before you could love him. He loved me before I could love him. We see that in the Gospels, a couple of years later, it's no longer Nicodemus coming at night. It's Nicodemus choosing life instead, and giving everything he's got, risking everything for the one who gave so much more, an infinite amount of love was given on the cross. So today, I'm calling upon you to choose life. Choose life. Live for Him. And surrender your heart to Him. I'm going to do something that um, is super uncomfortable doing. We've never done it at this church. That's why I'm uncomfortable doing it. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward and I'm going to ask who's here, John Williams. Come on up, my John. The gospel insists that we call people to surrender to the cross of Christ. And I want you to do this for me. Consider where you stand with Jesus today. Consider where you stand with Christ today. John and I are going to be here in the front. Michelle's going to be here in the front. If you're a lady and you'd feel more comfortable talking to her. And I know it seems ridiculous to do an invitation in a room that has 100 people in it. That's what we're going to do. And maybe you don't need to surrender your life to Christ, although I pray that you do. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've never looked at the cross and said, I'm a sinner, I'm, I've been snake-bitten, Lord, but I believe that you died to take my sins from me. I believe you died to take my punishment. I want you in my life. I look upon you to be saved. If that's your heart's desire, we're going to play some music. We're going to silently pray as a congregation. And I'm going to ask you to just come down front. 
take one of us by the hand so that we can pray with you. And maybe you're here and there's somebody heavy on your heart that you know needs to be saved. Maybe as a Christian, a follower of Christ, you're saying, I- I'm just not getting through to this person. or I need to- They're not even in my circle of influence, but I pray that somebody would be raised up in order to see them through to the cross. Maybe there's an issue of obedience in your life that you need to take a step out on. Maybe you're here and you've, you've confessed the Lord as your Savior, but you've never been baptized. The Bible says that the very first public declaration of faith in Christ is to come to the waters of baptism. And that's where we paint this picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the whole world to see. Baptizo, it means an immersion. It's where you, the wave has washed over me. And I want everybody to know it. Maybe you need to make that decision. I want you to come and take one of us by the hand. Whatever God's leading you to do, in the next couple minutes, it's your opportunity to do that. And if you're not moving forward, I ask you, you just bow your head and you pray for those who need to move. Let's all go to the Lord together at this time.